Hey, everybody, this is Brian Zond. Welcome to my sermon podcast. Now, before we get into the sermon, though, I want to tell you that I have a live in-person prayer school coming up Friday night, Saturday morning, November 3rd and 4th. So if you can be with us, we would love to have you for prayer school in the upper room right here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri, Friday night, Saturday morning, November 3rd and 4th. And then if you want, you can stay around for Sunday. That's our anniversary Sunday. We're celebrating 42 years here at Word of Life. So to register, it's it's registration for a donation of any amount. Go to wolc.com slash prayer school for the in-person prayer school November 3rd and 4th. This morning, I want to preach on paths of unseen existences. Last Sunday, I talked about re-enchanting the Christian soul, and I said, well, we do that with heaven. And so this is continuing on that theme. I want to preach more on heaven by preaching on paths of unseen existences. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, the apostle Paul says, so we look not at things that are seen, but at things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The very first thing, the very first thing the Bible tells us is that in the reality of existence, in the phenomenon of being, God has created two realms. In the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. So there's the heavens and the earth. There's the heavenly and there's the earthly. There's the spiritual and there's the material. There's the eternal and then there's the temporal. Now, in Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, and in Greek philosophy... The most substantial of these two realms is not the earthly, not the material, but the heavenly, the spiritual realm. So we need to renew our minds a little bit. Uh, Spiritual does not equal insubstantial. We're conditioned to think that way. That, well, the spiritual, well, that's the less real. That's the insubstantial, but that is not how people have mostly thought about that. That's a modern phenomenon. So in Greek philosophy, uh, the realm is, the eternal realm is the realm of the eternal forms. That, that the idea is that, that you say, well, why are you talking about Greek philosophy? Well, just hold on, I'll get there. Um, the idea is that this world, what I see and hear, taste, touch, smell, all that, is a sketch, a reflection, a less substantial image of that which is eternally the case. So we would say it this way. The reason there are mountains here is because there are eternal, more substantial, glorious mountains in heaven. Is anybody glad, glad about that? 
And, and, and these mountains are, are reflections of those. Or it's, it's gone, you know. The reason there's trees here is because in the realm of the eternal forms or in heaven, whatever language you want to use, there's trees. There's, there's horses. Because somewhere there is the eternal form of horses. And this is a reflection of that. So that's the thought that goes behind this. Uh, that's in Greek philosophy. In the theology of the Hebrew scriptures, heaven is the realm of glory. And that word that you'll find, that word, that Hebrew word is kabod. And glory, kabod doesn't mean shiny or bright. That's kind of what we think of glory. Kabod is this great word. It means weighty, like gold, like, oh, it's heavy. It's, it's, it's substantial. It's heavy. It's weighty. Thus, C.S. Lewis's very famous sermon, The Weight of Glory, which is a worthy sermon. You can find it online for free. Just Google C.S. Lewis, The Weight of Glory. That sermon that he preached in 1942, it's, it's there, and that's a good sermon. So, in the theology of Paul, because that's who I'm beginning with, in the theology of Paul, what we find is a synthesis of Hebrew revelation and Greek philosophy. And the reason I'm stressing, because there's, there's been this over the last, I don't know how, a while, there's been kind of this move, because, oh, we can't have any Greek philosophy in our, in our theology. Well, no, you have to. Um, Paul is an example of the synthesis of that. The apostles and then later the church fathers uh, saw no contradiction between synthesizing Hebrew revelation, Hebrew scripture, and Greek philosophy. In fact, you know, there's a name for that. If you take, if you take Hebrew, philosophy, Hebrew revelation and scripture and then mix it with Greek philosophy, there's a name for that. It's called Christian theology. That's the name of it. That's where it comes from. And so... That's significant. Now, among the ancient Hebrews and the ancient Greeks, and then later among the Christians, the heavenly, though unseen realm, was thought to be the real and eternal realm. That's why Paul says, we look not at things that are seen, but unseen. And, and Paul's not stupid. He, he understands that that's, that's going to throw you off a little bit. We look at things that are unseen? Yes. And he gives you the reason. He says, because that which is seen, yeah, it's here, but it's temporary. If it exists here, it's temporal. It's not eternal. It doesn't last forever. But there is an unseen realm where things are eternal. So, beyond the veil of this ephemeral temporal world, there lies the eternal world. There's different words you can use for it. One of the most common is heaven. So, so heaven is not in another part of this cosmos, like it's... You know, you can just go find it in your spaceship. It's right here in a different, I don't know, do we want to say dimension, realm? I don't know. It's hard for me to say. There's, there's the heavens. It's right here. And sometimes there's glimpses of it. Sometimes there's evidence of it. Sometimes a little bit of heaven starts seeping through. And we generally call that beauty. So this is how uh, we've thought about reality as Christians for a very long time now. Until recently, during the modern age, 
which technically would be like the last 400 years, but I'm really talking about the peak of the modern age, which was like, you know, the midpoint of the 20th century. We've kind of moved beyond that, but still that's how a lot of us, that formed our thinking. In the modern age, we're nearly blind to the heavenly world. We're like, we're like those, those cave salamanders that, that lose their sight because they don't use it. Um, so that today, most of the Western world thinks of the heavenly realm as less real or non-existent at all. So our age right now, our age is an age of acute empirical perception that affords spectacular scientific developments. And I'm all for it. I'm all for it. I mean, I get excited every time there's new images, you know, released from the James Webb telescope. You know, and we see what's out there. But I tell you what you will never find in the James Webb telescope. You'll never find heaven and you'll never find God. Because it belongs to the temporal, material realm. And when we talk about God and heaven and all of that, it's in completely a different realm that cannot be detected. Now, but our age, though, has become so, I mean, we're so good at this with all of our, we've become so fascinated with what we can know scientifically, which I'm all for, but we've become so fascinated with all that we can learn scientifically through empiricism that we've lost our spiritual perceptivity. And it was like, we've become so focused on the material world that we've forgotten there is another world. And, and many don't even believe it anymore because they can't see it. As if the only way to encounter reality is through the five physical senses. What, a, what an impoverished superstition that is to think that way. So this lack of spiritual perceptivity, it, in, it, it engenders a profound sense of emptiness and meaninglessness. Because as great as us all is, if all there is is matter, then nothing much really matters. Certainly not eternally, because we know, we know this is temporal. We do know that. You know, I mean, even, even someday even the sun will die. Oh, does that mean it's all over? Well, if that's all there is. So with a lack of spiritual perceptivity, we have this increasing sense of emptiness and meaninglessness. And this is the condition that the great poet, great poet, T.S. Eliot, yeah, he's a great poet, who, who in the course of his career becomes a Christian. You can see it happening, you know, in his poetry. If you just read the whole corpus of his poetry, he becomes a Christian. And in his, one of his most famous poems is The Hollow Men, written in 1925. And I'm going to read you just the opening and closing lines of that poem, how it opens and closes. T.S. Eliot, The Hollow Men, 1925. We are the hollow men. We are the stuffed men leaning together, headpiece filled with straw. Alas, this is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. That's what happens if you lose sight of the eternal. So if we're to avoid ending up as hollow men and women, whimpering about the emptiness of it all, 
which is like every French film ever made. (laughs) We need to find the paths of unseen existences. The paths of unseen existences. And now I'm drawing upon the language of another great poet. This time Walt Whitman, the great American poet. Um, In his poem, Song of the Open Road, which I've just been reading over and over and over lately. I've just kind of just been stuck in it in a good way. T.S. Eliot says, you paths worn in irregular hollows by the roadside. I believe you are latent with unseen existences. You are so dear to me. You paths worn in irregular hollows by the roadside. I believe you are latent with unseen existences. You are so dear to me. So Walt Whitman, as a good poet should, knows that there are unseen existences. He's not a materialist. He's not not one that thinks uh, all there is is matter. In fact, materialists will never become great poets because they have to have some sort of inspiration that they know comes from elsewhere. And so Whitman, the poet, hints at paths that lead into a world of latent unseen existences. That is that there are ways by which we might encounter the eternal within the temporal. Whitman, because I've been reading so much of his stuff and then I'm trying to learn about him a little more, um, Apparently he had, he doesn't, he doesn't talk about it directly, but it's, you can see it in his poetry. Around the age of 35, he had a mystical experience that completely changed his life. In uh, one of his poems, I forgot which one, Song of Myself perhaps it is, he says, uh, a mouse is miracle enough to stagger sextillions of infidels. Let's unpack it. A mouse is miracle enough to stagger. Sextillions. You know, you know that number? You know that number? A sextillion is a trillion billion. <laughs> a mouse is miracle enough to stagger trillions of billions of, he says infidels. He means atheists is what he means there. He says, if, if you will just wake up, a mouse is enough miracle to put you into a place of faith. That something like that exists. Forget the whole of creation. Just a mouse is miracle enough to stagger sextillions of infidels. There are paths of unseen existences. And salvation for the modern soul, I mean, if, if we're not going to end up Hollow men and women, whimpering. It's all meaningless. There's nothing. If, if we're to avoid that fate, we need to, our soul needs a pilgrimage upon paths of unseen existences. Paths that in our secular age are mostly unmarked and untrodden, but can still be found by those who know where to look. If these paths are true, they will lead the soul on a pilgrimage toward wonder, beauty, and glory. 
Most of us in our childhood innocence once knew of the paths of unseen existences. We actually knew them as a child. But we didn't know how to name them. And so as we leave childhood, we enter the disenchanted world of adulthood. The task of spiritual maturity is to recover that original enchanted emphasis, but now with the experience necessary that comes with the knowledge of adulthood. Jesus says it this way, you must become like children to enter the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't mean childish. He doesn't mean naive. He doesn't mean you have to suddenly become illiterate again. But there must be a return to some kind of childlike innocence where, yes, you are aware that there is more than this material world. David Bentley Hart, who I think is probably the best Christian apologist alive, in his book, The Experience of God, he writes this. Personal experience is not only an authentic way of approaching the mystery of the divine, but is powerful evidence of the reality of God. That's the first sentence. Just, just listen. Personal experience is not only an authentic way of approaching the mystery of the divine, but powerful evidence for the reality of God. And he's saying there in context, basically he's saying, don't think the Bible is the only way you're going to know about God. I'm, I'm, I'm big on the Bible, my friends. I read the Bible more than y'all. But don't think that's the only way you're going to know God. Personal experience with God is authentic and genuine. The most important things we know, this is hard again. The most important things we know are things we know before we can speak them. Indeed, we know them even as children and see them with the greatest immediacy when we look at them with the eyes of innocence, but they are hard to say. And so we tend to put them out of mind as we grow older and make ourselves oblivious to them and try to silence the voice of knowledge that speaks within our own experience of the world. Wisdom is the recovery of innocence at the far end of experience. Oh man, that's a great quote. That's a, that's a, there's a reason why you two stole that quote from David Bentley Hart and started to use it in their shows. Wisdom is the recovery of innocence at the far end of experience. Or I would say it this way. Spiritual wisdom is the ability in adulthood to once again tread upon the paths of unseen existences. So how do we go about uh, this treading upon paths of unseen existences? Well, Paul tells us how. In the same passage here in 2 Corinthians where he talks about we look not at things that are seen but unseen because what are seen is temporal, what's unseen is eternal. He then goes on to say we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. The only way to venture upon the paths of unseen existences is to walk by faith. You say, what is faith? Well, faith is the response to the evidence given to our heart or spirit, if you will, from the unseen world. There's all kinds of information being beamed to you from heaven, from the unseen world, from the spirit. There's all kinds of information, but you will not detect it with eyes, ears, tongue, nose, hands. You will detect it by another part of your being that 
typically we call heart or spirit. And you have been so conditioned in this materialist age to, you've been told that's illegitimate because you can't prove it empirically. Right, exactly. That's the whole point. It's like someone arguing, I will not believe in aroma unless I hear it or see it. That's not how it works. Aroma is you detect with the sense of smell. Oh, I don't believe in smell. Well, then I can't help you. We walk by faith, not by sight. Faith is response to the evidence given to our heart or spirit from the unseen world, or as Hebrews says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is what detects the evidence of things not seen. Now, I'm talking about the paths, so I've got to get to the paths. I've been preaching 20 minutes. Okay, got to get to the paths. There are paths, there, there's, there's how we journey through life most of the time. And in modernity, we're on this loud, noisy, high-speed interstate all the time. Um, there are other paths, my friend. I know, I know we have to spend a lot of time on that interstate. I get it. We do. It's just part of life. But there are paths that diverge from the noisy high-speed interstates of modernity and lead us into the mysterious woods of unseen existences. There are holy paths that intersect with the unseen eternal world of the heavens. And these paths exist and they are known by some people because these people travel upon them. There are, there are wise guides out there to say, well, no, I can tell you about some of these paths because I, I traveled them. Um, but you can't walk these paths by sight or by a purely rationalistic mind. Now, I hope, I hope everybody, I hope you all understand I am no opponent to rational thought. I'm all for it. I, I, think, I think you should develop that capacity to the extent of your ability. I'm just saying that the rational mind is not capable of encountering all that exists within the phenomenon of being. The other thing I'm saying is the highly intelligent do not have an advantage over the rest of us in encountering heaven. Because it's not, it's, it's not approached that way. That's not, it's not how you come upon it. So you're not going to encounter these paths by a purely rationalistic mind. We have to be willing to walk by faith with an attitude open to holy mysteries. And a soul properly formed in good spiritual practices will begin over time to intuit those paths. Wonder, for example, is a reliable guide, a, a reliable way marker, a, a reliable, yeah, way marker. 
to point us toward paths of unseen existences. So pay attention to that which evokes wonder in you. You know, that sense of awe, that, oh. Pay attention to that. When you encounter that, lean into it. Develop that capacity to detect and to wonder and to be drawn by that. All right, so what are some of these paths of unseen existence as well? I'm afraid you're going to be disappointed because I'm going to start with something that's so obvious, but I've got to talk about it. Prayer. Prayer. Um, there are other paths, but you won't experience unseen existences without prayer. You just won't. So if you say, well, well I'm skeptical that, even, that any of this even exists, this heaven and this unseen. I'm a, I said, well, do you pray? Well, no. I have to be convinced before I pray. Well, then you'll never. Then I can't help you. I can't help you. This is the path that will take you into that world where you can eventually experience God. But if you won't, if you won't even walk the path, I don't want to tell you. I can show you some paths, some trails in Rocky Mountain National Park where you might encounter bighorn sheep. You start off there at Milner Pass and you climb up to the end of the trail, it kind of ends. And you just, and then head toward Mount Ida. And more than once I've seen bighorn sheep up there. I can't tell you, I can't say every time you walk that path, you'll encounter bighorn sheep. I can also, but I can tell you this, you're never going to see a bighorn sheep on the Belt Highway. They're just not there. They're just not there. They're not there. They're, if they are, if you see one there, something's gone terribly wrong somewhere. So I'm saying that prayer is a path. See, don't stop thinking of prayer as like a duty Oh, I gotta pray. I don't pray enough. Like we're accruing merit. It's none of that. I'm just pointing out a path. Prayer is venturing upon paths of unseen existences with the intention of discovering and experiencing God. That's why, that's why, that's why prayer school is the most important thing I do as a pastor. It just is. It's the most important thing I do as a pastor. I mean, if somebody asks me today, what do you think is the most important thing for a pastor to do? Teach people how to pray. Now, I don't, I'm, not saying this, I'm not saying this critically or anything. The problem is most pastors don't know how to pray, really. And, that's a problem. and I didn't for a long time. It was more than 20 years before I really learned how to pray. By the grace of God, I learned, and now I want to teach people. So get registered. In-person prayer school, Friday and Saturday, Friday night, Saturday morning, in the upper room here at Word of Life Church. So there's some other, though, paths that can kind of venture into unseen existences. And another one is nature. You know this. Um, the places of sublime beauty in nature, whether a grand mountain or something that's just small and humble as a, as a small wood. Um, these are powerful testaments 
to the heavenly realm of the eternal. I mean, I think that's part of why sublime scenes in nature, what do we say? Oh, that's, that speaks to my heart. You're, you're saying more than you know there. That speaks to my heart. Because what you're doing is you are seeing, let's say it this way, you are seeing a more faithful representation of what exists in the eternal realm of unseen existences than, say, a Walmart. Woods and streams and mountains and oceans are a more faithful representation. I'm, I'm sure that in the unseen world, there are mountains and streams and all of that. I don't think there's probably Walmarts. I'm not against Walmart. I'm just saying they're not the same. So pay attention to the beauty of nature around you. Sunrises. There's a beautiful sunrise this morning. I saw it. Sunsets. Full moons. We just had one. Um, woods and rivers and lakes. Just, just pay attention to that beauty. And then, when, and then when you encounter it, really pay attention to it. Stop for a minute. Lean into it. You, you, are, you are beginning to tread upon paths of unseen existences. Something from the other world, something from the heavenly realm is shining through the material realm. And it's speaking to what? Your heart. Now you can learn about it too. You can, you can learn about it scientifically. You know, is that actually a sunrise? Is it an earth turn? Okay, well, whatever. I know this. But lean into that part of you that is being moved with wonder. Develop that. Capacity. Then there's, there's thin places. This is a concept that comes to us from Celtic Christianity, which was a Christianity uh, that was free from the influence of the Roman Empire. And so it, it has a more mystical quality to it. Perry can tell you all about it. She's done some study in that realm. Um, what's it? The... the, the uh, what was that council they had? Whitby or something like that? We're just having a conversation, you and me. We can just do this later on. The Senate of Whitby. They made the wrong decision, didn't they? Yeah, I know they did. Yeah. All right. Back to you all. Um, thin places. This is the concept that, yeah, we know that there's these two dimensions, earth and heaven, but, but there are places, there are places where the barrier is thinner than other places. And you begin to, I think there's something about this place. I sense that. So thin places. Deserts can be thin places. That's why a lot of monasteries began there. But there's also man-made thin places. For example, uh, well, man-made because of, because of purpose and history. Because if a place is not built just out of utilitarian function and it has a long history of some kind of holiness, uh, it can gain a numinous sense of the holy. For example, cathedrals. Cathedrals. I'm thinking especially of Notre Dame. You know, it's, what is Notre Dame? It's a lot of things, but it is also worship in stone. It's worship in stone. And that's why 
you know, April 5th, 20, April 15th, 2019, when Notre Dame was on fire, people wept. I mean, Notre Dame on fire is not the same as Walmart on fire. They're just not the same. And that's why, that's why people who, who would say, I don't care about religion. I don't care at all. But they see Notre Dame on fire and they're moved. Why? Because, well, this is a, there's something holy. There, this is a thin place. The Camino de Santiago. I know I go on and on about this. But I'm just telling you, it's a thin place. Why? Well, because for 12 centuries, people have been walking it by the millions over, you know, Centuries, millions and millions and millions of people have walked that path with a faith purpose, with a faith purpose. And it just sort of has worn, a, it's, worn it's worn into a thin place. And I, t- I tell you, everyone senses it. Thoroughly secular people who have never been to church in their life, they walk the Camino de Santiago and they say, whew. Something about this place. They, they all, am I right? They all say that. I, there's something about this place. All right, you say, well, okay, BZ. I hate to inform you this, but I can't go to Paris and see Notre Dame. And I can't go to Spain and walk the Camino de Santiago. I'll tell you another thin place. The upper room. You're like, what, 200 feet from it right now. It's going to be 20 years old in November. We built that. It had a purpose. It had a holy purpose. It's been kept to that holy purpose. And you go in there. I mean, how many of you can bear witness? You go in there and there's something different. You go, People walk in that space and they begin to whisper. We don't tell them that. We don't stand out and go, shh. They just, why? Because you're encountering the numinous. The spirit of the place is holy. And it's a good place to sit. It's open during the week. You can come. Just go in there and sit. If you don't know how to pray, just go in there and sit. Don't even just sit. You'll begin to learn how to pray. By just sitting in that place, something, it'll be kind of drawn out of you. <clears throat> the last one I want to mention, these are not all of them by any means, is sacrament. Sacrament, that's a, that's a term that's hard for modern Christians to understand. What is, sacrament doesn't mean like super holy. I mean, it could, if you understand what, what lies behind the meaning of the word. What it really means, sacrament is an earthly portal to heavenly participation. A, a sacrament is something that sort of exists in both worlds simultaneously. A sacrament is something that is material. So it's not just an abstract thought or an idea. It's, there, there's some materiality to it, but it is something that connects you to another world. I mean, I'm tempted to use an occult word to help you understand what I'm saying. It's kind of like a talisman. But in Christianity, no, 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 no. It's, it's not occultic. It's spiritual. And so that's why if you say, well, all I need, all I need to practice Christianity is my Bible. Not true because Christianity is inherently a sacramental religion. So to practice Christianity, yeah, you need the scriptures. That'll help you a lot, but you also need 
water for baptism. You need oil for anointing. You need bread and wine for holy communion. Somebody says, well, they're just, they're just a symbol. No, they're not. It was 1,500 years before any Christian said, it's just a symbol. That was Zwingli in Switzerland in the 16th century. This is the first time. Now, I understand. I understand. It's, I understand how wine can be symbolic of blood. That's really easy to see. Bread can be symbolic of flesh. I get that. There is a symbolic quality, but no, 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 no. It's far more than a symbol. It is a means of heavenly participation. The cup of blessing which we bless, the bread which we break, is our participation. This is the Apostle Paul. Our participation, our koinonia, our sharing in, our fellowship with the body and blood of Christ. So it's sacred. So, so in just a moment, we're going to invite you, and everyone's invited, we're going to invite you to come and participate in the sacrament of communion. And as you walk down these aisles to do that, you know what you're walking on? Paths of unseen existences. You, you are coming, you're on a path that's going to bring you to an encounter with something that properly belongs in the other world. But here, it's breaking through into this world. Through bread and wine, but it's actually connected to the body and blood of Jesus. Whew. So stand up with me. Let's get ready to walk the paths of unseen existences, come and participate in the body and blood of Christ. Let's prepare ourselves for this little venture. First, by confessing our faith. It's the faith that has been delivered to you. You know, you go to, you go to uh, websites for churches. You know, they're all the kind of the same. What we believe, and you click on it. And most of the time, at least in the Protestant world, it's just something that some people made up. Probably the pastor sat in his office one day and said, well, what do we believe here? Well, I believe this. I'll say we believe this. And I make up stuff. You don't get to make Christianity up. It's a received faith. If you, you click on ours, what we believe, Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed. We don't get to make it up. We just, it's passed on. It's passed on. It's passed on. And so we're going to confess our faith that has been passed on because it's precious. And then we're going to confess our sins because we're sinners, but we're sinners in the process of becoming saints. And we're going to receive the pardon of the Lord. And then we're going to walk paths of unseen existences and participate in the body and blood of Christ. Hallelujah. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. 
He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now join with me in confessing our sins. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy so that I can say in the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Amen.